is, of course, it's of course inevitable that when we have an urban futurist in our midst talk about 21st century urbanism and possibly beyond, that um, the LSE technology will revert to its finest 20th century uh, comfort zone. Uh, so thank you for your forbearance, and especially Alex for yours. I'm Fran Tonkis. I'm representing here the Urban at LSE network of urbanists, and I am the director of the Cities Programme, as many of you will know. It's my particular pleasure today to welcome Alex Stefan uh, to speak to you about the hidden future of cities, although he's revealed some of it, we hope, already. Given that all of us here sincerely hope that there is a future for cities, um, we're very interested to hear Alex's talk, and I'm sure many of you will have engaged with his work in various ways and perhaps seen his um, him talk before via the, me the wonderful medium of TED. Alex um, is engaged in issues of sustainability, social innovation, and planetary futurism. We hope there's a future for the planet as well. We share that aspiration. And he, is, um, author he has authored the text World Changing and World Changing 2.0. Um, so Alex is going to speak to you for a period of time now. We'll also have time for questions and discussion afterwards. But in the meantime, can I ask you to join me in welcoming Alex Stefan. Can you all hear me? Is this thing on? All right. How are you doing? Great. Excellent. Um, so I am Alex Stefan, and I am here to talk to you about the hidden future of cities. Um, why would the future of cities in particular be hidden? Well, I think that one of the things that, uh, that I've come to believe is that we, uh, when we look at cities, we really lack an understanding of current reality, that we see cities through the lens of the past and through uh, previous understandings of how urban areas and humanity work together. Um, and I want to sort of talk about some of the things that, that I have seen and some of the ideas that I've seen uh, emerge as uh, sort of interesting windows on this. And I want to do it in light of a project that I've been working on recently called Carbon Zero, which specifically asks the question, what would a carbon neutral city look like? And how realistic is it for us to imagine uh, implementing one in a relatively short period of time? Um, the first thing that I think is really important to take on uh, when looking at cities is the degree to which cities are, uh, you know, systems uh, and not only systems but very complex interlocking connections of systems. And we are really not trained to think in terms of systems. Even those of us who've maybe had a systems thinking class or, you know, uh, occasionally uh, kick these ideas around are generally still trained in a, in a very particular uh, mode, which is in terms of academic or professional silos, right? We are, we are given tools with which to see the world, uh, which uh, have a lot to do with the history of the discipline from which we come, and very little to do with the actual objective correspondence to reality. Um, and we know that there's a phenomenon for the, or a description of this phenomenon, which is bounded rationality. Right? And we know that this is very common, that people will often optimize their, uh, you know, their, their understanding and decision-making uh, with regard to a certain problem within their own field. Right? So uh, as a, you know, um, uh, an elected leader in a city government who is responsible for certain issues, that person will really optimize the policies related to that issue without having any sort of understanding of how those policies might affect other related issues. 
and how those then in turn might turn around and affect the policy that they're dealing with. Um, in addition, we also uh, suffer these days from a uh, very uh, common degree of filter bubbling. Um, is everybody familiar with this term? Okay, so uh, filter bubbling is essentially more and more the technologies that we have to give ourselves access to uh, information out there uh, select for us what information we will in fact get. Right, so the, the original sort of concept was around Google, which over time personalizes your search results to the extent that you get more and more of what you've already sought. Right, so you end up in a bubble uh, of, of what you're filtering for or what it thinks you ought to be filtering for. But this has since been sort of expanded to a much wider understanding that people tend to seek out information that confirms what they already believe. Um, and that especially as we are all sort of overwhelmed with information and competing, uh, you know, in this, uh, you know, trying to figure out how to use our limited amount of attention to deal with this vast field of information, what we tend to do is use our attention to pay attention to the things we already know about. Um, that means that we tend to get very poor signals from other aspects of a system. Um, does that mean? Uh, in reality, of course, the world is not made up of silos, right? It is made up of whole systems. It is made up of, uh, you know, these really complex, uh, interconnected, interlocking sets of influences of stocks of resources and energy and skills and flows of money and, and energy and so forth. Um, but unfortunately, these systems are also often counterintuitive. I think that is me, isn't it? No? Yeah? All right. Um, and uh, even more so, they're often hidden from us. Our, our effects on these systems and these systems' effects on us are often hidden from us by the very interfaces that we have by which to judge these systems, right? So uh, one of the really great examples of this is that most of us um, have very little idea where things like our water comes from, you know, in terms of actual physicality. Like, where did the water you drank this morning come from? Like, what lake, what river, what underground aquifer? Right? Most of us have very little idea where our energy actually comes from. Like, where is the power plant or you know, wind farm or whatever that sent you know, the electricity coursing through the wires that uh, turned on your light this morning? Right? We, have to, we tend to have these interfaces which are, uh, which are almost intentionally, and in fact often are intentionally, designed to separate us from the reality of the system and present us only with a very narrow bit of information. You owe us this amount of money. Right? Um, and. Uh, in addition, we also have political uh, influences these days that very specifically set out to separate us from, uh, from truer understandings of the systems around us. The most like, obvious example of this being industry-funded climate denialism, right? where the industries themselves have been caught out in papers and position papers and so forth saying, yes, we know that all of this is true, but we need to act like it's not true. Right? And so we have this extremely well-funded, multi-billion dollar industry of people trying to tell us that the weather system, the climate system, does not in fact behave the way science says it does, but, in, but behaves this other way. And unfortunately, it's not limited just to climate. Right? There are all sorts of other uh, you know, uh, things with health and so forth. I mean, tobacco was a great example of somebody trying to change our understanding of a system, in this case, our own bodies. Um, and there's a lot of this. There's a lot of interventions designed to sort of keep us from seeing the totality of a picture because if we saw it, we would feel compelled to act. 
Um, add to this some really uh, uh, unfortunate cognitive biases that we all inherited from our you know, uh, prehistoric ancestors, which seem to work really well for them, uh, but which aren't working so well for us, and we're really in trouble. Particularly, we tend to really overemphasize the immediate in our choices. Um, so we, uh, you know, almost all of us um, have sunk cost thinking, right? If we have already invested money in something, even if there is a better investment, but we will lose this money and yet end up making more, most of us will stick with the current investment we have because the idea of losing money we've already invested, that we've already sunk into something, is so painful that we just won't go there, right? Um, and I think we can see that thinking all through our society, where there are things that we do, and we don't want to change them because that's the way we do them. Right? Um, in addition, we also uh, you know, have this bias for the past, right? that most of us tend to uh, assume that the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior, um, which is sometimes true, but is uh, very much uh, not true when you're dealing with systems, which often have nonlinear uh, functions. Right? So they're often, they go on as they have been going on until they don't. Right? You know, uh, often there are exponential kinds of things where uh, you know, four days out from the last day, it looks like still almost nothing's happening. But as you start to keep doubling, it really gets quite serious. And we are, in fact, surrounded by systems that are exponential at this point. Right? Um, you know, uh, population is still exponential. Uh, climate change, we're dealing with exponential feedback in terms of the climate. Um, you know, many of the kinds of financial issues we're dealing with involve like exponential slides. And what we really ought to be doing is thinking more clearly about the ways in which we need to affect behavior, right? Because if you are on an exponential curve, by the time it gets really steep, it's too late, right? Because at that point, the results are getting so big that they exceed our capacity to meaningfully engage, right? So if you want to like deal with this stuff, you always have to deal with it early. But this is about the opposite, you know, the exact opposite of how our minds are built to act, right? We are not built to think long-term. We are not built to think in terms of preventive measures. Um, and we certainly aren't built to think in terms of preventive measures in big systems whose immediate effects are far away. You know? And yet, unfortunately, that is the planet we live on. And we know this particularly because we're engaging more and more with the realities of climate. And we're finding that even our, our previous scary understandings of what was going on with climate change are insufficient. Right? Uh, some of the smartest climate scientists in the world are telling us that the only sort of the highest safe level for uh, CO2 and equivalents in the atmosphere is 350 parts per million. Um, you probably know that there's a, a small problem with this, which is that we're already at 394. Um, and we're probably almost certainly going to hit at least 450, no matter what we do. Business as usual, we could hit 7 or 800. Right? But the reason why we need to be thinking about this is because climate itself, again, uh, is nonlinear, right? So it doesn't just get a little bit worse every time you add a little bit more, right? It gets a little bit worse and then a little bit worse plus, then a little bit worse plus. Then we start to get into situations where potentially we could hit these feedback loops that would be truly catastrophic. I'm sure most of you have heard about things like the melting of the permafrost, right? Um, you may have been reading recently about coverage from this last summer of these mega fires that happened all over North America, right, which are pretty directly attributable to the fact we had one of the driest years in North America on record. Um, or you may have been hearing about the even more alarming uh, 
fact that methane uh, that's been frozen on the floor of the Arctic Ocean for uh, many, many thousands of years is apparently starting to melt and bubble up. Right? All of these things are results of climate change, but they are also potential uh, accelerators of climate change. Right? They're, they're, they offer the potential that the feedback loops coming back out of the uh, climate could be even worse than what we're already putting into it. Right? The only way to avoid those things is to get back down to a level where the amount of temperature rise in the planet is not greatly accelerating these things. Um, and in order, of course, to get there, we need to not only zero out our emissions, right? we're going to need to actually pull carbon out of the atmosphere. Right? And because of a whole set of issues around global equity, around access to technology, and so forth, we know that we're not going to do this all at the same time. Right? That there are uh, those of us who uh, live in nations that have already contributed far more than our fair share, uh, everybody in North America, raise your hand now. Um, you know, uh, and we really need to be pushing hard, as do people in Europe and, and Japan and other uh, fully developed nations now. And we need to be doing that precisely to be able to buy some runway for people who haven't yet used their share of the atmosphere. Meaning that those of us who are in the developed world, uh, in order to respond to questions like this, need in fact to be uh, aggressively pursuing carbon neutrality, and not as a distant future item, but as something we do over the next 20 years. Um, yet again, in one of these systems kinds of ways, when the discussion goes to issues like 350 or carbon zero, uh, there's always this debate about realism, right? where people are like, well, that's a really great idea, but let's be realistic here. Right? This is a perfect example of bounded rationality. If your rationality is described by the current functioning of the market and the benefits to the players currently in the market, then yes, in some ways, you know, completely cutting our carbon emissions uh, back down to zero, or at least netting out at zero, uh, seems you know, sort of implausible. Right? But I would put to you that that is a really good example of somebody not grasping the whole system. Right? Because a world in which quarterly profits for, say, existing coal companies uh, are describing a more realistic planetary strategy than a world in which melting the ice caps should be avoided um, is, you know, it's a pretty clear mix-up in our signals. And what's more, we actually know that there are, there are contributing factors now that are making what we think of as normal already obsolete. Right? So there's often this presentation when people talk about things like climate change where people say, oh, well, we can choose to change, right? or we can keep doing what we're doing. I would put to you that we are not going to be able to keep doing what we're doing no matter what. That our idea of normal is already connected to a planet who we no longer live on, that we no longer live on. Um, and you know, there's some really obvious ways in which this is true, and I'm going to run through a few of them. But I would say that one of the things I would say to you is that if part of what you're trying to figure out is how you look for opportunities and where you look for opportunities. You would do yourself a great favor by starting to think about the ways in which the normal that we now live in is different from the normal that our markets are based on. Because that gap is where all the important innovation, all the important entrepreneurship is going to happen. Um, and that gap already exists. So what are the sort of defining bits of this, right? Um, well, one of them is that we have a series of interlocking forces 
that are fundamentally shifting the way that humanity lives on this planet. Right? First of all, we're headed towards peak population. Right? The most people who have ever been alive on the planet or who ever will be alive on the planet, as far as we can sort of anticipate. We are in the midst of a planetary crisis that has uh, a lot more, you know, there's climate change, but there's a lot more than that. It has to do with food availability, energy supply, um, you know, uh, uh, ecosystems, uh, fisheries, etc. Um, and we are headed, uh, even most importantly, into uh, an incredible surge of urbanization. Um, and that these things are, in total, create a set of system, uh, changes that are systemic and big. Right? They create a scope and a scale and a speed of change that are unlike anything we've seen before. And I think that we are uh, in one of those positions where uh, it was possible to be you know, a young person at the beginning of the last century and by the end of the century have seen you know, the invention of the automobile, two world wars, you know, uh, the rise of the internet, et cetera. And that was considered an astonishing amount of change to have lived through. And I would uh, bet very large amounts of money that all of you are going to live through an amount of change that makes that seem tame. And it's going to happen in the next 20 to 40 years. And here are some of the reasons why. So all resources on the planet are either renewable or non-renewable. Right? If they are non-renewable, they're mined, essentially. Right? They're, they're oil that's pumped out of the ground. They're coal or other minerals that are, that are mined. Uh, they're fossil water that we're tapping. Um, and all of the uh, non-renewable resources, of course, since we live on a finite planet, are finite. And there are extraction economics involved here that mean that we can't actually sort of reasonably tap everything. Right? You know, there are reserves that don't make economic sense to try and go after. And as we've looked at what, uh, you know, what the curves that, that do make sense are, what we're finding is, in fact, a great many things are reaching their peaks. Right? So uh, peak oil, uh, 10 years ago, was kind of an out there conspiracy theory kind of thing. Now we have institutions like the IEA saying that it's, it will be here by 2020, or others you know, like Lloyd's and the World Bank saying, oh no, it's probably actually already here. The recession has just hidden it. But in any case, we're talking very soon, and definitely within our lifetimes, we are going to see oil prices rise again exponentially, right? which is going to put all sorts of pressures on, on our system. But not just oil, right? There's all sorts of rare minerals and so forth that uh, we only know of X number of years supply anywhere on the planet. So whole ways that we thought of of doing things, uh, you know, 20th century assumptions that we've had about availability of resources and there always being another pool of resources or a similar pool of resources to draw on, those assumptions just no longer make sense. And beyond that, the renewable resources, right, which are by and large grown, um, uh, as opposed to mind, uh, the renewable resources themselves also have a tricky little thing, which is because every renewable resource is itself a little system. If you disturb the system too much, you get something different, right? So if you, a great example is fisheries, right? If you have fisheries, if you have a bunch of fish out there, you can take a certain amount of fish and they're gonna be just fine. They're gonna have babies and there will be the same amount of fish next year. Right? And that is a renewable resource. You have a stock of fish and a flow of, uh, you know, of fish that you're taking out. But in almost all cases, if you push renewable resources hard enough, right, if you take too much out, what happens is that the stock becomes a non-renewable resource. 
right? And we've seen this with fisheries again and again and again and again, that when you have enough people taking fish out of a fishery, eventually there are not enough fish to maintain a population, and it crashes, right? And we've seen this literally, I think, a dozen times now, and there are quite a few very serious people predicting that basically there are no fisheries that we won't have crashed in about 10 years. Um, another example is forests, right? You can sustainably log a forest for a very long time. But when you start logging to the extent that the topsoil washes away, that invasive species come in, et cetera, what you end up with is no longer anything like the forest that was there. And this is something we're doing all across the landscape. Right? This is almost the definition of the environmental crisis, is that we're turning renewable resources into non-renewable resources. You know, and we're doing that mostly because we have this enormous hunger for building cities, right? And for the prosperity that comes in cities. The world is adding right now, depending on which agency you believe, somewhere between 200 and 250,000 people every day to the world's cities, right? And that is people born in cities, it's people moving to cities, it's people moving between cities. Um, but fundamentally, it's kind of hard to grasp that. I like to think of it in terms of Seattle's. I live in Seattle. Seattle is, uh, is a little less than three quarters of a million people. So that's roughly a city the size of Seattle every three days. And if we measure urban growth in Seattle's, what that means is by 2050, we're going to have added 4,000 Seattle's. Right? That's the pace of urbanization we're seeing now, which is it's, it's not only unlike anything we have seen, it's unlike anything we even know how to look at, really. I mean, I know that's something that, that folks at the LLC have been doing a lot of. Uh, hard thinking about. Um, there's a further wrinkle here too though, which is that it's not just about who lives in the cities, it's about who lives near cities. Because you don't have to live in a city to have acquired access to urban markets and to start to live in an urbanized pattern. Right? What matters is that you live close enough to be able to travel for things like healthcare, perhaps even for jobs, uh, and when you look at people living within one day of a major city, by 2050, 95% of humanity will live within one day's travel of a major city. We will be a completely urban species. So it's even more dramatic than it sounds up front. And of course, people move to cities for a very simple reason. Right? That's where the jobs are, that's where the education is, that's where the you know, uh, um, healthcare is, and so forth. Right? Uh, when people move to cities, uh, by and large, two things happen. They get richer, and they die less young. Right? And it turns out that more wealth, less dying, is pretty much a good sales proposition for almost everybody on the planet. Right? Um, and we know that there are, uh, there, there, there's something along the lines of about 4 billion people, if the curves kind of hold right, who by the middle of the century will have joined the global middle class. Right? Um, and quite possibly another half billion people who will have achieved sort of developed world standards of living. Um, that's an enormous surge of wealth, right? It's almost incomprehensible. Uh, you know, I mean, that's more people than were alive in what? Probably 1980 or something like that, right? Um, and again, the kinds of degree of change that that's going to generate, I think, is a little hard to grasp. But pointing, looking at China does offer one little window. Um, so by 2030, there will be 220 cities in China with populations larger than a million. Right? Um, world as a whole, there may be a thousand or more cities with populations larger than a million. 
In Europe today, there's something like 35, right, to give you a sense of how many cities that is. And there's actually, there's some great graphics out there that are about like, you know, um, the biggest, like the top 20 biggest cities in China. And most people have heard of like three of them, maybe four if they've really paid attention, right? There's all these cities out there that in uh, sort of Western media don't even exist that are larger than almost any city in Europe, right? And this is just accelerating at this phenomenal rate. But there's another thing, which is that all of the kind of flows that we're talking about out of these systems, whether we're talking about renewable or non-renewable resources, right, and whether we're talking about you know, climate emissions as an output or wealth, right, they all run through cities. Right? There is no economy, basically, that isn't urban. Right? Resource economies exist to serve cities, which is, on the one hand, kind of terrifying. Because if we build a whole lot more cities that work the way that you know, our cities do today, well, then it's kind of game over, buy a place in the Arctic, right, you know? Um, but it also means that we have a very small number of leverage points that we can look at that could fundamentally change the entire global economy, right? That there are no more than 1,000, and realistically probably say more like the top 200 cities, that if you can redesign the way they work, you will have redesigned a huge percentage of the entire global economy. Um, meaning that it becomes really important to start to think about how cities might be different. And part of this is to start to realize that the technological environment in which we exist has also changed just as quickly. Right? So um, it is sometimes, I think, difficult when we're in it to see it happening. But the amount of technological change that's happened even within the lifetime of the youngest person in this room is truly staggering, right? Um, uh, you know, I mean, think about like one simple thing of phones that can pull up maps, right? That connect you back to your city in space, right? Unless you were really, really, really an early adapter, nobody in this room had one five years ago, right? And part of that is that there's just so much more access to things like GPS satellites, uh, the ability to conveniently reach wireless networks, the processing computer power that's in the phone. And there's this guy, Ray Kurzweil. How many of you have heard of him? Um, so he is a, a futurist technologist guy. Um, I think he's a little loopy sometimes, but people who are a lot smarter than me, who I trust their, their assessments of technology, think he's brilliant. And he has certainly been extremely accurate at predicting the rise in uh, various kinds of computer processing so far. And he predicts that by uh, 20, what is it here? Um, uh, sorry, by, by uh, 2035, we will see a billion-fold increase in the power of processors, the, the speed of computation per dollar, right? A billion-fold. Let's say that he's 99.9% .9 wrong. Right? That's still a million-fold increase. Right? I think it is really difficult to imagine what happens you know, uh, to this when it is a million times faster. Right? Um, and you know, all of this adds up to this unbelievable amount of change in a very short period of time. Right? The largest building boom in human history, peak population, this you know, economic transformation, this technological transformation, the running out of some resources, the need to you know, curtail other uh, you know, uh, uh, wastes and so forth. And when you look at all this stuff, especially in terms of climate, it, it gets really tempting to go looking for simple solutions. 
right? And nowhere is like that desire to find simple solutions more easily addressed than in thinking about clean energy, right? Most of the time, uh, when we think of the systems around us and we think of them as being normal and their operations as being realistic, and then we think about solving climate change, we come back again and again and again and again to the same solution, which is lots of clean energy, right? We go, um, well, you know, uh, the source of the majority of our emissions are the burning of fossil fuels. So therefore, uh, clearly the answer is to come up with something other than burning fossil fuels, right? Find some other source of energy. Uh, and I would put to you, though, that thinking of climate change as an energy problem is the key to not solving it. Um, and there are some reasons for this. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm totally in favor of clean energy. I think we need lots and lots of clean energy. I think, you know, clean energy should be a priority that, uh, you know, trumps most priorities on our planet. But the fact of the matter is that there are enormous uh, political, uh, economic, and technological barriers still facing us in terms of deploying the amount of clean energy that we would need to meet an unchanged demand curve. Right? Because if things don't change at all, we're looking at, a, at a possibly a doubling and possibly much more than a doubling of global energy demand. So you'd need to not only change every bit of energy we're currently using to clean energy, but do it again in the next 40 years in the face of one of the most determined and well-funded opposition movements ever. Right? Um, and I just don't find that very likely. But I also don't find it very necessary because the only reason that we think clean energy is the only solution is that we're still thinking in terms of what's normal today and what's realistic uh, in, the, in the debates that we've had so far. And when you look at things in a slightly different light, right, when you start to look at things not in the ways that we have classified systems so far, not in terms of our silos, right, but in terms of a larger understanding of systems, we start to understand that um, it is possible um, to not judge things just by their immediate sources, which is how, for example, most climate footprinting is now done. How much, you know, how many greenhouse gas emissions came out of your tailpipe? How many came out of your furnace? Um, you know, how many came out of the smokestack of the power plant that supplies your electricity? Add it up, and that's what you're responsible for, right? Which is a pretty narrow way of viewing the world, right? But actually starting to think uh, in a much sort of broader way about how do we count everything? How do we look at everything that was involved in making the prosperity around us? Right? One of the things that that does is it immediately raises our emissions. If, uh, if by our we mean people who are in the developed world or live developing world or developed world standards elsewhere, we, it turns out we are responsible for a much larger share of emissions than we tend to sort of take responsibility for, right? That we have, in fact, offshored huge amounts of emissions to countries that are manufacturing goods, that are growing agricultural products, et cetera. And we're saying, oh, yeah, you, you know, China, you've got to stop burning all that coal, but please keep sending us that cheap car, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, but the second thing that it does is we start to really understand that our emissions are the result of the way that we meet needs, not of the needs themselves, right? Um, that in many cases, when we are talking um, about the systems that make up a city, right, we tend to say these systems, you know, transportation demands this amount of energy, uh, buildings demand this amount of energy, et cetera, right? And we tend to treat those things as givens 
But when you start to look at it just through the slightly different light of, of assigning bigger responsibilities, what you start to realize is that all of those systems are in fact subject to change and that what we are looking for right, is not necessarily those systems that we currently have, but the, but the result we are aiming for in the first place. Um, the clearest example of this has to do with transportation. Right? Most of us, when, if I say the word transportation, most of us think like you know, cars, trains, and planes. Right? That's the first thing that pops to mind. Right? And we tend to almost fetishize the, the objects which give us the mobility that we associate with transportation. Right? But underneath that, there is a, a basic assumption, which is that the important part is the mobility. Whereas for most of us, the important part is the access. Right? Most of us are not looking to travel more miles every day just because, right? If I was like, hey, you know, I can set you up with a life that will have you driving 200 times more every week. Most of us would not say that's a win, right? What people want is more access to the, the, you know, the people they want to see, the products they want to buy, the jobs that they have, you know, the, the recreational opportunities that they, that they want to have. Um, and so what we really want is not you know, mobility itself, but access. And that we know that access can be provided not just by mobility, but also by proximity, right? That when we bring things closer together, um, that is another form of access, right? The most sustainable trip we're ever going to take is the trip we don't take because what we wanted is right there, you know? And the benefits that we find in cities in particular, right? Since what cities are, are, are agglomerations, right, of things that we want access to. The benefits that we find in cities in particular of having compact communities of encouraging density are really clear-cut. This is the only graph I'm going to throw at you today. But this is probably the most proven finding in urban planning, which is simply that the denser the community, all things being equal, the less energy it uses on transportation. Right? There are exceptions and there are minor deviations and so forth. But you know, it's pretty easy to understand why Houston has one kind of energy use, and Hong Kong has a different kind. Right? Um, and we also know that it is possible to change the density of cities, and that, in fact, it's possible to decide to change the density of cities. One of the cities that has done this really, really well is Vancouver, which has had a, a, an explicit policy of eco-density, they call it, for 30 or so years, um, and has done something really remarkable. It is the only North American city where car ownership per capita has dropped, where vehicle miles traveled per capita has dropped, and where transportation energy use per capita has dropped. Right? They're doing something that was regarded pretty much as impossible, right? in that they are coaxing North Americans out of their cars. Right? So we know that this is possible. And we know that there are actually things that can even magnify the effects of density. Um, for example, the provision of transit. Um, one of the things that I found really interesting here is an example of a way that a system works differently than you would think it would. Um, if I said to you, I'm going to offer you, uh, you know, you're going to travel a mile on this train every day, how many miles of driving do you think that would displace for the average person? Right? I generally thought, oh, well, if somebody's traveling a mile on the train, they're driving a mile less, right? I mean, they're both travel. Well, but it turns out that there's a phenomenon called transit leverage, which actually means that depending on the density of the city, a person who goes a mile in transit actually drives four to nine miles less every day. Right? And the reason why is because people who use transit travel differently. 
right? And I'm sure you've all experienced this, where if you are taking transit to work or school, you have to plan your trips a little differently. You're like, yeah, I'm gonna swing by the store on my way back, and oh yeah, I should also like go do that in the morning. And, and because you're walking or biking to the station usually itself, you start to bundle trips, you start to plan how to do things. So instead of the like most auto-dependent version of that, where you make you know, 10 trips to do 10 items, right, you in fact maybe have one trip. And so you're essentially eliminating trips simply by choosing to do that. This is, of course, even more true when you talk about walkability. When you make streets that are really focused on people, densities uh, affects leverage even more. Um, and in fact, there is this interesting threshold effect. We're all familiar with the paradox of intensification, which is geek talk for, as you add more people to a city, the traffic gets worse, right? Even if more of those people are biking and taking transit, there's still more people driving. Well, the paradox of intensification only goes so far, and then it levels out, and sometimes drops. Right, so that at a certain point, people go, it's a real hassle to drive. I'd rather not drive. And in some places, enough people would rather not drive that traffic actually goes down. For example, Amsterdam experienced that. Um, and you don't need to talk about building a biker's utopia um, to get there. Uh, you, uh, you don't need to talk about a war on cars. Um, you know, a lot of this stuff is really simple, basic urban design techniques. Um, and these things have all sorts of ecological benefits, all sorts of economic benefits. There's a, you know, what's been called the placemaking dividend that we found, that people who are walking by a store on foot are much more likely to shop in it than people driving by. So despite 60 years of retail planning that has emphasized getting as many cars as possible past a store, it turns out the best thing to do is have people slow down and walk past. For example, Times Square, when it switched over to all pedestrian, the stores there had a 71% increase in sales in the first year, right? But there are even more interesting things. For example, health. Um, we don't tend to think of you know, land use, transportation as a major health issue. But there are some signs that especially in really uh, auto-dependent places like you know, the US, Canada, and Australia, it is a major and perhaps the dominant health issue. Um, we know that cars are essentially bad for your health, that uh, you know, crashes are a leading cause of death in, in all countries, but especially in auto-dependent countries. Um, they are the leading cause of death for children in the United States. Um, tailpipe pollution is a major contributor to the rise of asthma and to contributes to lung cancer. Um, and almost all of that pollution, of course, comes from cars. Um, but also, auto-dependence itself correlates with uh, high blood pressure and heart disease. Right? The, the more you are dependent on your car, the more likely you are to be obese and have a heart attack. And it could be that fat, angry people move to the suburbs. <laughs> but, um, but there's an even more fun uh, finding, which is uh, there's this guy named Alan Durning in Seattle um, who was wondering about the, the contention. A lot of people are like, I would love to walk, but it takes me 30 minutes to walk or five minutes to drive. Who has the time to spend 30 minutes? So what he did is he, he said, hmm, I wonder how much longevity you get by walking 30 minutes each way every day. And it turns out that you gain enough life that you're not actually spending any time walking. <laughs> and the time you spent walking is time you would have spent dead. So, um, and we in fact know that it's possible to transform density in urban environments, even that seem really difficult to change, right? For political reasons, because they already seem very dense, whatever. Um, and one of the major reasons for this is that uh, density is an average, right? We don't need to have uniform levels of density everywhere to achieve the effects of density. 
that sometimes density can work just like a tentpole. Right? If you have a tentpole and you lift it up, all of the fabric rises up around it, even though the fabric itself has not changed. Similarly, if you have a major corridor through a city and that corridor densifies quite a bit, all of the area around it changes its behaviors, even if nothing changes in those areas. And so we know that it's possible to make sort of strategic interventions, little acupuncture things that provide these results, um, which uh, is not only of great interest in terms of lowering people's climate emissions, changing the way that they deal with transportation, but also provides all sorts of interesting retail things, because it's possible to imagine with very, uh, you know, or business opportunities, because it's possible to imagine without an entire city changing, certain areas changing to such a degree that entirely different ways of living become possible in a very short period of time. Um, and I would argue that that's not only likely, it's inevitable in many places. Um, and some of that density will be, you know, really well thought out, comprehensive, you know, master planned kind of areas, you know, eco districts, you know, the Swedes love to do their eco districts, right? Um, this is in Malmo. Um, but some of it will also be like really cool little nifty interventions, right? Some of them are very basic infill, like there was a gap in two, between two buildings, we put a building there. Some of them are crazier stuff, like you know, we're taking the air rights and developing those over existing buildings. And some of them are about taking densities and not changing the densities themselves, but infilling with systems that make those densities more livable, more usable, make public space more usable, actually allow it to function in even higher densities without adding more units. Um, buildings, of course, are what cities are made out of, essentially, buildings and infrastructure. And we know that buildings are a major cause, uh, a major contributor to uh, climate change emissions. We know that there's a lot we can do about this, right? We know that we, we can, um, you know, impact uh, uh, older buildings, we can retrofit them, we know that we can, uh, you know, uh, add insulation, improve the windows, et cetera. There's a lot you can do here. Some of the limits there are limits placed by financing. Some of the limits there are limits placed currently by technology, right? There are some things that, there's some buildings that are just really hard to make energy efficient, right? But the, the financing part is starting to work out. There are more and more of these pay-as-you-save systems, right, where um, you borrow the money essentially from a utility or a government or what have you. You do the, you know, the upgrade and then the savings that you have in energy over time get taken to pay off that thing. So you get a better building at no cost essentially. Um, and some of the technical stuff is changing too. There's all sorts of really cool interesting ideas out there for how to use some of the new materials and sort of the new computer uh, aided insights into specific sites that allow you to you know, plan for things to, to transform the way that buildings work. Um, the ultimate expression of this, especially in new buildings, is the passive house standard, which I would bet probably none of you have ever heard of. Anybody? Oh, wow, that is, you are so much more informed than the average audience. Um, <laughs> seriously. Uh, you know, basically, passive house is really simple. If you site the house correctly to, you know, sun and wind, if you build the house uh, insulated to a proper sort of airtight standard and you control the ventilation, um, it is possible to, you know, uh, to heat and cool a building with only sunshine and breezes and shadow uh, and to light it during the day very much with daylight, cut down lighting emissions. Some of these buildings have achieved, in fact, it's common to achieve a 90% reduction in heating and cooling and up to a 50% reduction in daytime lighting use, right? So uh, that's kind of essentially free savings 
um, at a certain point. And uh, if we were able to build only new buildings from now on, if, it, if the entire world were made of new buildings built to the passive house standard, the whole question of building emissions would be kind of over, right? So, uh, you know, it's one of those things that, that very quickly is getting not very much fun to talk about because it's like, oh, well, we know the answer to that one, right? Um, however, we're finding some really cool things as well about things like how density works with green building. Um, for a very long time, we thought of green building largely in kind of hippie terms, right? I mean, the first people to really go out there and explore green buildings were, you know, back to the land kind of folks building, you know, straw bale homes and whatever. And so we still have this kind of pastoral association with green. Um, and very often when you pick up like a dwell magazine or other like, you know, lifestyle that lifestyle plus green kind of thing, you know, there are these sweeping homes on vistas overlooking some more somewhere or whatever. But in fact, we know that if you really want green, you want this. Right? that there are huge advantages to building densely. Um, some of them are just inherent to the form of like multifamily housing, like shared walls are more efficient in terms of materials and energy. Some of them are about, uh, some of them have to do as well though with uh, shared infrastructure systems that are possible uh, when you have a large multi-unit building. Um, this is uh, Bjarke Ingels, Danish architect, uh, his, his project in Copenhagen called The Mountain. Um, so these are all oriented for passive solar and. And, and really green, as you might imagine from a Danish project. Um, this is just about to be built, which is the Bullet Center in Seattle. It's a local environmental foundation that we have, and they set out to build um, a multi-unit uh, building that provided all its own energy and either captured rainwater or reused water to provide all its own water needs. So it's zero energy, zero water, um, which is pretty cool. Uh, there are some challenges with this sort of thing, right? Which is that uh, you're only able, I mean, look at how far out they cantilevered these solar cells, right? Uh, and any farther and like basically the whole thing would like fall over. Um, you know, and so with, even with these solar cells at current technology, you're only able to provide X amount of energy, which means that what goes in this building had to be severely limited. They had talked about having like a cafe or restaurant. Well, those are incredibly energy uh, intensive. So they had to cut that idea out. They talked about having residential. Well, it turns out people who live in a, you know, in a building use more energy than people who just work there. So now it's all offices, right? So there are some limits still to what can be done. But you know, we know what's possible. And all of this, of course, accelerates as well because we're gaining the ability to meter flows all around us, right? One of the things that happens when chips get cheap is it gets possible to measure anything you want to measure. Right? And already, of course, we do this for energy and water in most places. And when you measure something, you start to use it differently. Um, does everyone know what the Prius effect is? Anyone? Okay, this is kind of cool. Um, so it turns out that if you have two cars that are identical in every way, right, except for that one of the cars has a mileage meter, the car with the mileage meter gets better mileage. Right? Now, how, how could this possibly be true? They're the same engine. Right? They're the exact same car. They can't perform differently. Well, it turns out that when you have a mileage meter in your car, it sends feedback to the driver. And drivers pay attention to that. And they're like, huh, I'm getting less than the, you know, the factory uh, you know, uh, authorized amount of mileage. Like, I wonder why that is. Huh? I notice my mileage meter goes down every time I floor it out of a red light. Maybe I should not do that, you know, um, et cetera. And it basically, the car over time provides feedback that makes the driver a better driver. So the difference between the two cars is not the car, it's the driver. And it's the mileage meter that makes the driver. And we're seeing this effect all over the place, that when people get uh, feedback about how they use systems, they change the way they use them, 
right? So bringing energy meters inside homes, we know, drops energy use in homes by 7 to 12% without doing anything else. Simply showing people their energy use makes them use less energy. And this is especially true if you uh, actually show people their energy use in comparison to <laughs> other people. Um, is that your bill? Uh, yeah, probably. You know, um, uh, uh, no, that's a, a city of Seattle project. Um, so, in addition, right? These technologies, when you when you have technologies that are attached to wireless networks, sensors, monitors phones, etc., right? They suffuse urban fabrics in a new way, right? Um, if your walk shed is everywhere you feel comfortable walking within uh, a, 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 a given distance of you know, your home or office, um, then these become walk shed technologies. Um, I think it's really interesting that, um, so I'm, I'm old enough to remember life before Google. That's how old I am. And, uh, you know, there was a time, believe it or not, where if you wanted to find something on the internet, you had to go to a directory of things like it, right? And you had to go to, like, Yahoo, and it would have a big directory that was, like, you know, shopping. And then you'd have to go to, like, another page that had a big, long list of, like, things, and you had to click one. And that was the only way you could find things, right? And that, in fact, was the only way you could find things in cities, right? Was to, like, one by one call stores or go drive to them, even worse. And, like, you know, if you wanted to find the best price, you had to, like, drive to, like, a dozen stores. <laughs> Right? True. Um, uh, you know, cities were browsable only then. Cities are searchable now. Just like you can go, you know, and use Google or another search engine and find exactly what you want or get close to it, right? Cities themselves, uh, all of their capacities, all of their shops, uh, experiences, jobs, etc., cetera, uh, other people are becoming easily findable, right? Um, you move through cities a completely different way, right? Uh, I think it's interesting that some people are, are, noticing, are noting that um, you know, uh, this is probably the last generation that will know what it means to get lost. <laughs> Although some of us may take a little longer. Um, and you know, all this makes the city a profoundly different place. Add to that, that when people start connecting online, they do the exact opposite of what futurists said they were gonna do all through the 80s and 90s. All through the 80s and 90s, Futurists were saying that you know, as people become more immersed in, 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 you know, uh, with the internet and as more and more of their social contacts migrate online, they will become less and less a part of the physical world. Right? They will live in cyberspace. They'll all be otaku. You know, like, we'll all like, sort of be you know, holed up in our apartments, never talking to people ever again. Right? You know? um, but in fact, the exact opposite has happened. That the people with the largest number of social connections online also spend the largest amount of time socializing. Um, and that what we find is that uh, quite the opposite of taking the place of real world contacts, that if you take somebody who doesn't have a lot of friends and, increase, and, and introduce them to online networking with people who live in proximity to them, they are more likely to develop friends, right? That, that uh, social software, in fact, accelerates socialization, you know? Um, and in addition, of course, this stuff is, again, just at the beginning of the curve, right? Um, you can start to map fields of communication in urban spaces, and every year they grow more, more numerous and more interconnected, 
right? And our ability to look at things and figure out our relationship to them is just accelerating in a way that's really difficult to notice. It's a, it's a frog in boiling water kind of issue. Um, you know, you don't notice the water around you getting normal or uh, warmer. Uh, but there is one example, and it's a little bit of an old example now, but I still love it, of how some of this thinking changes. It's uh, Zay Frank's project, If the Earth Were a Sandwich, and, and um, it's a really great mission statement. Never before have two pieces of bread been simultaneously placed on the ground directly opposite each other on the globe, <laughs> thus making an Earth sandwich. The fact that the Earth has never been a sandwich is probably why things are so fucked up. Um, <laughs> And you know, you might think, okay, this is a really geeky project, right? Who would want to do this, right? I, I'm on GPS, you're on GPS, we're on the opposite side of the world, like we figure out when we're exactly opposite of each other, take a piece of bread, put it on the ground, who would go to that trouble, right? Well, actually, of course, many people. Right? Um, the Earth has been made a sandwich from just an absolutely staggering number of angles, right? Um, and uh, you know, and people really love this. And I think part of the reason why is because it allows us to experience a connection that is truly planetary, right? I mean, you can't get any more like planetarily connected than knowing somebody is exactly on the other side of the globe, right? And if you jumped hard enough, you might fall through and be able to see them, you know? Um, at least that's what I thought when I was seven. Um, but there's also like some really great ways of starting to understand our own history in space. Uh, this is a project called Where the Fuck Was I? Um, that this guy did where he downloaded, um, you know, as you probably all know, your phone when it's on is tracking everywhere you go because it needs to be in triangulation with cell phone towers. Well, you can download that data. And he downloaded that data for a whole year. Year, and then he mapped it, and he did a series of maps that shows where he moved through the city, where he was all year. Right? That's also a kind of thing that's possible. Um, it starts to change our ability to access services, too. This is uh, just an awesome concept. Um, it's INAP, which is uh, it's for transit riders, and you, you tell it what transit stop you need to get off at, and shortly before you arrive at that transit stop, it makes your phone alarm ring <laughs> to wake you up. Um, uh, this is another thing I just think is really cool, which is called Magnificent, which will take any given place and tell you how, f how far you can get in a given amount of time uh, on public transportation from there. So that's my house in Seattle. That's how quickly, how far you can get in one half hour. Um, of course, there are also uh, increasingly things that, that help you literally move through your walk shit. There are things like Google walking maps. And recently I was considering uh, a, a trip on the Ridgeway, which is a very ancient walking trail in the UK, some of you may know about. Um, and so I asked Google Maps how, how to use that. And uh, this is what it told me. It's not quite perfect yet. Um, it suggested I go via the island of Guernsey. Um, it did, however, helpfully warn me to use caution that this route may be missing sidewalks or pedestrian paths. <laughs> and of course, you know, this kind of information being attached to things doesn't actually demand circuits, right? One of the things that's really interesting is that with augmented reality, right, we are gaining the ability to basically describe data onto things that, ascribe data onto things that are uh, themselves stupid, like roads, right? Um, where if you are hooked into the right, you know, community or or what have you, you can learn things about places where there's no actual transmission happening there. This, for example, is, is a LAYAR program, um, which will, anywhere in London, you hold up your phone, and because your phone knows not only where it is in space, but also the angle and orientation of the camera, um, it will overlay an, on, on that image, right, um, directions to the nearest tube station. 
So it'll say like, oh, go down this street and go that way, right? So it's sort of like you know GPS for cars, except for it's you know in your handheld. Um, and this stuff also, of course, changes. Uh, paradoxically, of course, talking about technology, just as I held up my phone, I started getting a call. Um, uh, this also changes the way that we interact with stuff in space, right? So this is Endosa, which is, I think, a very, very cool project. Um, basically, what it is, is this is a small mall, right? Every one of these boxes is a store, right? Every one of these boxes is the work of uh, an artist, you know, fashion designer, craftsperson, uh, et cetera. And it's like a little place where you can go and see what they do and the kind of things they do. And then you can either, you know, order the stuff in the store or just order, you know, on your phone or whatever. So it's basically, it's showing you what's available as a, as a sort of physical interface to an online shopping experience, right? It's what's known as a web front. Um, and I think this is, this is pretty interesting. And of course, the, the other part of this is that you then are in a delivery agreement with the people, right? You're not carrying around bags and bags and bags of stuff, which made a lot of sense when you're going to throw it all in the back of a station wagon. Makes less sense when you're about to bike home. Um, instead, the stuff's being brought to you, which is also both cheaper and more ecological, right? It is far more ecological to have you know one van making 100 stops than to have 100 people get in their cars and drive somewhere and pick something up and drive home. You know, the big bummer with delivery has always been that there's a little bit of a crapshoot, right? When you get something delivered to your house, you're kind of like, um, okay, is this going to be there when I get home, right? You know, or will somebody grab it off the stoop or whatever? Uh, Germans have come up with a really great thing. The German Postal Service has these pack stations, right? The idea being that if you get a package, it sends you a text with a code. You go to this thing, you enter your code. It, you know, it has the packages stored and it brings the package up and you can go home. So it's safe storage of, of, of delivery. Um, this is something I just noticed the other day, which I think is even more interesting, um, which is, so I, I can't vouch for this guy and his credibility. He may be a total you know, crook. I don't recommend that you pursue his services without further uh, inquiry. But um, so basically Craigslist, which is now the largest online marketplace, um, in North America at least, uh, and certainly the largest secondhand marketplace, uh, has one really critical flaw, which is that the really cool thing you find, you know, that, that you know, kitschy old gas stove that you've been wanting to get that's available for $7 somewhere, is quite often far away, right? And so if you don't own a car, that suddenly makes it a much more expensive stove, right? Because you either have to rent a car or whatever. This guy basically has a truck. <laughs> And you order something on Craigslist, and you call this guy, and for a small fee, he will go there, pick it up, and drive it to your home. Right? I would submit to you that nothing on this sign would have made any sense to anybody whatsoever 15 years ago. <laughs> In addition, we're starting to realize that we are surrounded by not just capacities, but surplus capacities. Right? We aren't used to thinking of our consumption as being sort of um, as being something whose utilitarian value we can assess, right? We're used to thinking basically, well, you need things, you buy them. That's the way it works. But it turns out that a lot of things we buy, um, we don't actually need or we don't use the way that they're designed to. Um, my favorite example is the power drill. Um, who here, probably very few people I'd imagine are owning power drills, home, home drills uh, at grad school. But um, 
but I own one, and something like 100 million American households do. I don't know what the UK number is. Uh, they're incredibly common, right? And most people buy drills for the same reason I bought a drill, which is that I wanted to make some holes in the wall, right? I lacked hole-making capacity, and I fixed that by buying you know, a piece of metal and plastic that has this huge, you know, uh, not only a huge ecological footprint, but cost like, I think, $149, if I remember rightly, you know, and also, right, has the capacity for 10,000 hours of drilling. Well, the average home power drill is used somewhere between six and 20 minutes in its entire lifetime. <laughs> right? So most of us are sitting around with like a whole neighborhood's worth of hole-making capacity sitting on our shelves, right? And this is true, you know, not just of drills. Um, now, it's true that we can, of course, try and find ways to use those other 9,999.5 hours of, you know, hole-making capacity. We could uh, start to, you know, fix meals with our drills. Ice sculpt, if, you, if you're in America, you could make jack-o'-lanterns. You could even do a mafia hit, right, if you're really enterprising. Um, but maybe it's more interesting to think about how we might start to view those surplus capacities as resources to be tapped, right? Because if you know where you are and you know where a thing is and you know whether it's being used or not, and all of this is very knowable now, like why would you not want to have merely the use of the capacity and not the object itself, right? Why would you not want to be able to borrow it, to rent it, to share it, right? And the, the process of turning objects like drills into services, right, like hole drilling, um, is, you know, it's this product service system idea. And this is one of the things that's really booming out there that I think is, we have just seen the beginning of. But there's also this larger thing of post-ownership, which is that when you live in an urban space, your, your relationships to objects changes, right? Um, any of us who, who have gone from a larger home to a smaller home, by moving more central, have, have experienced this where suddenly it makes no sense at all to have certain things. You don't have the room for them, right? Like nobody who lives in, you know, in a 600 square foot apartment, uh, probably, well, I'm sure somebody does, but very few people choose to have home gyms, for example, in a 600 square foot apartment, right? Just doesn't make any sense, right? If you live in a 600 square foot apartment, you use the gym, right? You use a product service system. And because the gym is so convenient, Right? It is available to you there. Right? There's a lot of talk about cloud computing, you know, about like sort of having software that lives out there and you can sort of reference it from any machine at any time to do what you need to do. Well, these are cloud objects. A gym is a cloud object, right? especially a chain of gyms. Right? You can go use that gym wherever you are, whenever you want to, without having to actually own any physical object. Um, and this is, uh, in fact, becoming more and more common. And I think will be made more common still as we start to get these things that are between public and private, right? So for example, again, I think a gym is a, is a, is a good thing, that, a good example, that you can belong to a gym that is m likely to have more people who are the kind of people you want to be working out with, right? Um, you may not want to go to that really skeezy gym over there, right? Or you know, or you may want to go to the kind of gym that I go to, which is a neighborhood gym that includes both grannies and like these bodybuilding dudes who are like you know, all like professional movers. Um, and this stuff is just going to accelerate as more and more and more things, right, become trackable, knowable, and networkable. Um, again, a really brilliant example of this is the new service um, Cardigo. Right. Most of you probably are familiar with car sharing. Right? Car sharing is a very, very great example of a product service system. Cardigo sort of takes it in another direction, which is that the cars 
uh, can be picked up and dropped off anywhere. Right? So you don't need to return a car. It's a, it's a one-time it's, it's, you know, one service. You just go, you find the nearest one, you get in, you drive it wherever you want to go, and you leave it there. And if they get too distributed, like somebody will go grab one and drive it back to a better place. But generally within a certain zone, you're allowed to drive it anywhere, leave it anywhere. So it is essentially a cloud of cars at your disposal. Um, and I think we're seeing more and more and more of these things. Uh, again, another example is pop-up spaces. Right? Most of you have probably seen like stores that are temporary, immediate. Again, this is one of those things that would have made no sense to anybody 15 years ago. Like why, first of all, would you allow a client who's going to be there for a month? Right, on the renter's point of view. But also, what business could possibly build a clientele in a month? Right? That could not have happened until you reached an era where things were going through networks and where the business could move in there knowing this is like this uh, you know, uh, apparel startup uh, that moved into the space on Capitol Hill in Seattle. And they moved in there knowing that they had a large enough network of people that if they said, hey, we have a new store on Capitol Hill, it's there for a month, people, enough people would come to buy things. right? Um, that, that it would make sense. And so spaces themselves start to become kind of clouds. Add to this that we're starting to, when you be, are able to track things, you start to be able to figure out what actually works for you. Um, and that sounds like it, that doesn't sound like a real breakthrough, except for that I put to you that almost all of us have, a, have traditionally, at least until very recently, had essentially no economic information about our own lives like what purchases were good choices, what purchases were bad choices, what things were making us money, how to compare things. Or if we had those access, they were things that we had to hunt down ourselves. Right? We had to go find it out. And there are people, of course, who meticulously research like the best possible investment plan. But there are many more people like me who kind of just do whatever the default is. And it turns out that we're able to really think about products and other purchasing decisions in much more enlightened ways. That uh, we are able to look at things and go, this thing will have a return on your investment in it, or this thing actually will just continue to cost you money. Um, the great a great example of something that is not an effective wealth maker is um, you know, a high-end sports car. Right? You drive it off the lot, and you've just lost like a third of the value of the car. Mm -hmm. right? And it just gets worse from there. Right? Something that is actually a great uh, uh, return on your investment is, for example, a gym membership, if you use it. Right? Long after you stop going to that gym, you will still, at least in theory, be reaping the benefits of the visits you paid to it. Um, and in addition, of course, we're figuring out that many things uh, don't quite deliver what we think they're going to. Um, all of us are on um, you know, these hedonic treadmills where we need more stuff, like better stuff. That other thing is going to be even cooler. Like, I will look even sexier when I'm wearing that. Like, and we're just like, really wanting things that will uh, give us the feeling of acceleration in quality of life. At the same time, we're all suffering from vertical emulation. Right? Not that long ago, the people you compared yourself to were nearby and more or less like you. Right? So keeping up with the Joneses. Oh, the guy next door got a lawnmower. Right? Um, you know, now, we compare ourselves to the wealthiest and most famous people in the world. Right? You know? What the fuck? JLo has a, you know, a, 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 an island home like that, and I don't. Um, you know, uh, and you know, I have seen this process in some ways in my own life. I can remember when flat screen TVs were like kind of cool and like, you know, the next big thing. Now, of course, you need a home theater. Right? Um, I can remember when flying first class was like a sign that you had stepped up in the world. Now, of course, if you're anybody, you have your own damn plane. Right? Um, in fact, really, if you're anybody at all, you have your own flying private home theater. <laughs> um, there is some really like 
detailed and objective information that this is not actually making us happier, right? And that if we are trying to measure the effectiveness of happiness provision in the purchases we make, most of them are kind of crap. Um, and uh, you know, that I think is another way in which we're beginning to see the systems of products in a very different light. And because all of these products have themselves ecological footprints and consequences, if we can start to A, use them differently, and then B, design them differently, we can actually make really transformative change. And I'm gonna go quickly through a few of these things, but they're pretty cool. So this is a prototype uh, for a skin skeleton and guts electronics, right? So the, the idea is that you separate out the various components that make up something like a phone, you make them completely disassemblable, and thus completely recyclable and upgradable. So you don't need to throw the phone away on a regular basis. If you don't like the cover, you can change the cover. If it's just not you know, working as well anymore, you just buy some new innards and stick it in there, um, et cetera. Um, in a similar manner, um, Yerzy Seymour, uh, an artist, uh, came up with this really cool thing, which is a little, uh, essentially, like plastic polymer uh, snapped together furniture kits. Right? And these are like made, I think, of potato plastic or something. In any case, they're uh, literally compostable um, or recyclable. You can melt them down and pour new ones. Um, and they're made with very simple pieces of wood. Right? And so what you have, and obviously this is an art project, a prototype. This is not something we're all going to be living in tomorrow. But it suggests this interesting idea of a chair that is 100% recyclable and reconfigurable. Right? And given that furniture, again, is a not insignificant uh, part of our footprint, that's a cool thing. But it's getting even more than that. It's starting to go into the actual workings of things. So uh, little bits are like essentially Legos for computer chips. Right? You can make your own small uh, circuitry um, by snapping, <coughs> snapping these things together. And while these are like kind of a toy or a hobby, the thing that they're getting at of the ability of regular people to mess with things that previously were you know, way out there in the world of geekery um, is, is very, very real. And we're in fact seeing this starting to infiltrate into manufacturing itself. Right? So we're starting to see um, the acquisition of tools and abilities, of capacities, that let us actually remake not only the products, but the way we make the products. Right? So there are things like you know, fabbers and laser cutters and so on and so forth, which are themselves accelerating in speed. And, and offering different ways of thinking about how we you know, construct stuff, how we make spare parts for stuff. Um, once you have digital production, right, and it's still clunky, but it's improving rapidly. Right? I mean, you can already print out circuitry, for example. Um, and there are more and more feedstocks that 3D printers are gathering. Right? And 3D printers, for example, can change the internal structure of things. Right? You can't manufacture what's inside this table differently than this table's made in conventional modes. But if you're printing this table out, you can have all, sort of, all sorts of like internal lattice work that actually makes it stronger and lighter. Right? Because you're adding it molecule by molecule on a printer. Um, and once you're doing that kind of thing, right, you realize that all objects are, in fact, just expressions of software. And there are already sites that are out there giving you the software to make things. And this is just going to get bigger and bigger. Right? This is just one of them, um, Thingiverse. Uh, and in addition, you start to realize that there are ways in which cities can actually be promoting the more rapid acceleration of this stuff. Right? We, we tend to forget that cities are fundamentally, their, their biggest economic value is that they're places that where people bump into each other. Right? Ideas rub up, rub up against each other. And we have tended to 
uh, really downplay that value. We regard it as an intangible. We regard like sort of the creative process that comes out of that as something that's sort of immeasurable. Um, you know, we generally kind of look at uh, look at these things as being something we can't predict and certainly something that we can't promote. It turns out that really is not true, that we know a lot about how to um, generate closer flows of ideas, get people working together, right? There are more and more intentionally designed hacker spaces, for example, where people are working with you know, new technologies, especially sort of the, the digital fabrication stuff, get together and work on stuff together and share ideas, right? And there are more and more uh, you know, co-working spaces and other spaces that are designed to bring together different professionals to not only share office equipment, but to also have this interchange of ideas. Um, one of the things that's really most effective about this stuff, this one happens to be in Copenhagen, but they're all over everywhere, um, is that in these situations, right, the, the, one of the real scarcities in, in the modern economy is attention. Right? And one of the hardest things if you are a startup of any kind is just getting people to pay any damn attention to you at all. One of the great advantages that these things have is everyone in here has an incentive to get other people to pay attention to their office mates. Right? You want each other to succeed. And so you start to get in this situation where you start to tell people how to spend their attention. Right? You start to practice attention philanthropy. Right? And this is really non-trivial. The difference between a city that has an absolutely thriving startup scene and a city that has nothing is not necessarily the money. Because right? there are plenty of boring places that are swimming in money. Right? It's how energetic the culture is, how fast the ideas circulate. And in particular, how fast you get people talking about the changes they want to make. Um, that the speed of idea sharing about change is a really good predictor of the future of a city. And in fact, right now there's a lot of discussion about, well, where do you want to be when the shit goes down, right? You know, like when climate change hits hard, do you want to be in New Zealand or northern Canada or whatever? And I would argue that the, the single best way to choose a place to be is a place that knows it needs to change and is changing rapidly, even if it's starting from a really bad place. Um, and there are ways of accelerating those changes, right? There's this huge burst, you know, outburst of ideas conferences and exchanges, things like TED, but also things like Pecha Night, if any of you have been to one of those, or Ignite, which is a similar idea for technology. There are these things where people get up and they give a brief presentation about their, their idea, their startup, a new thing they learned, whatever. And, you know, sort of these things are happening on a rolling basis in most large cities now. Um, but some places they're really taking off. And in those places, what you have is a really rapid sharing of knowledge, right? And it's, it's completely bypassing the traditional ways of evaluating and sharing knowledge, right? So it's not going through academia and then eventually hitting journalism, then, then you know, years later filtering into the, the, the public consciousness, right? It's people who are like, I just invented something, and here's how it works, <laughs> right? And, you know, and some of this stuff doesn't even need to be high-tech or highfalutin. Um, this is a really cool project in New Orleans. Candy Chang did, an artist there. And it's before I die. And she just took an abandoned house, essentially fitted it with blackboards that were spray painted before I die, I want to. And it's been this hugely popular thing in the neighborhood where people come and they sort of write these things that they would like to see happen. And it turns out that many of them are things not only about their own lives, but about their community. And so for a community that has very little access to any kind of you know, uh, knowledge exchange in any formal sense, it's become kind of you know, an informal bulletin board about stuff that people are wanting to share. Now this stuff all filters out in other ways too. I could go on about food, I won't. You know, the food we eat is important. Uh, it's important to know where you're getting it from. Farmland preservation is important. 
you know, we, we need areas around our cities that are providing the food. We need to be taking care of our farmlands. I suspect everybody in this room kind of gets all this stuff. Um, in addition, cities themselves can work much more like natural systems, and there are huge ecological benefits to that, but there are also huge practical benefits in terms of reducing the need for, for resources, reducing vulnerability to um, extreme weather events, and so forth. Um, this is the way we tend to look at green cities. Right? This is Vancouver propaganda. Right? Um, and basically, it's like, yes, we're going to cover everything in leaves. Right? And when in doubt, this is the preferred design strategy of many architectural firms. You will see by visions like this, or like this, or like this, or like this. Right? You'll notice a common thread here, right? which is basically when people wish to portray a green future, the first thing they do is bust out the green crayon. Right? And um, some of these ideas uh, feature underlying technologies that are really smart, but some of them mistake the surface for the system. And where we actually see the systems working really well in green infrastructure doesn't necessarily look like something that's really natural. This is the Vancouver Convention Center, which is an extremely uh, green building, and uh, the green roof is particularly important. It has uh, important cooling functions. It also captures rainwater. Um, it provides some open space, et cetera. It really works as a piece of natural infrastructure within the city. But you'll notice that it's not, it's not mimicking nature. And we know that there are more and more ways of bringing this stuff into cities themselves, even cities that are already built. This is a, an Arab concept for how to you know, create the, central, uh, the center part of the street as a, a means of natural runoff um, uh, you know, control and also a, sort of a roving green space. And there are lots of places that already exist like this. Again, most of them tend to be in like Sweden and Denmark. Um, you know, but the, there, there are places like this is uh, in the middle of Stockholm, extremely high density, natural infrastructure. It's all working together. Right? These things allow us to really close the loop on resources. Again, all of you are probably familiar with the idea of recycling and composting, so I won't go into too much of this, except to say that when you actually have nearby farmland, nearby forest land, uh, or connections to more distant lands that you can use uh, in to, to be the recipients of your outgoing resources, you change the capacities, and you start to be able to really preserve and, and promote ecosystem services. And this is one of those things, again, our current way of looking at the world barely even knows what this term means. You know? um, ecosystem services are the things that nature does for us through its normal function. And most of us, I think, who live in cities tend to think, oh, yeah, nature does some things out there. Right? But the more uh, and more we evaluate the actual benefits of these ecosystem services, their price ranges from, oh, about as large as the entire global economy to much larger since we have no idea how you could ever replace it. Right? So for example, we've had a scare in North America and now increasingly around the world with this uh, bee colony die-off. Right? Um, it turns out that we have sort of taken bees for granted. But without bees, there are no crops. Right? And so you have these crazy situations where like apple farmers in different parts of the world are literally pollinating their trees by hand because all the bees locally have died. Right? That is an ecosystem service, that pollination that's being offered. Right? And it turns out that most of the systems that we're used to thinking of you know, as, as nature being peripheral to are, in fact, entirely natural. Right? We have, unless we're pumping fossil aquifers out of the ground, 
right? The water we drink is an ecosystem service. The air we breathe is an ecosystem service. The fact that you know it doesn't have wild fluctuations in climate and flooding and everything else around us is often due to the tempering effect of ecosystem services. And we're knocking this stuff out of alignment all over the place, right? I mean, it's, it's the biggest unseen damage that we're doing to the planet. But we also know that it's possible to turn that into reverse. And we know that it's possible to reconnect our cities to the surrounding ecosystems in ways that stop putting so much strain on the ecosystems, and in fact, in some cases, actually help them recover. Um, we can, you know, this is especially true in, in terms of water, right? Most rivers, lakes, bays that are near big cities are, are, are just pretty, uh, you know, they're disaster zones. But they're not, they don't have to be that way. Again, this is that same development in Stockholm. Uh, there's situations like Copenhagen decided that their bays needed to be clean enough to swim in for kids. That was their goal. They've done it. Right? We don't have to create sewers out of every bit of water around us. We don't have to have lifeless deserts in cities either. Right? This is the Pollinator Pathway, a really cool project in Seattle that's building a long linear park uh, with, with plants that are, that are especially uh, good for birds and bees and butterflies, which will help uh, them move through and in, you know, out of the city, thus pollinating the whole city, but also raising awareness. Right? Um, we could have cities that work very well with pollinators, for example. We could have cities that actually start to sequester a lot of their carbon. Right? And when we look at things like this, when we think about, for example, biochar, the idea that a lot of the, the waste we have could be used to grow crops like bamboo or you know, poplar trees or whatever that then get you know, uh, charred. Uh, we use the gas for energy, and we take that, that, that charred wood, and we plow it into the ground as a soil amendment. It makes the soil richer. It also puts a hell of a lot of carbon under the earth where we want it. Right? This is how we will get one of the ways that we will get out of this mess. But when we think about things, they seem you know, somewhere between implausible and distant. Right? When we think about the idea that, oh, you know, yeah, much of the waste that comes out of our city is going to help fuel systems like this. Right? And it ends up being true that the, the biggest way in which our sense of, of judging the possibilities of cities is off is in the timing. Danella Meadows, who wrote a really terrific book, if many of you have read it, you, or if, if you haven't read it, you should, called Thinking in Systems. Um, she also had a quote that I think is really pretty right on. She said, in a planet full of limits, the ultimate limit turns out to be time. And I think that we are at a moment right now where not only are all these things or things like them happening, going to happen, likely to you know, play out around us, but things are also going to move much more quickly than we could possibly imagine. And there's going to be a sharp divide between places, companies, communities that embrace that and places, companies, and communities that believe that they can weather the storm without change. And I want to tell you, uh, in conclusion, a little fable. Um, it happens to be a true fable. Um, 1989, you may remember, uh, fall of the Berlin Wall. Right? Um, the entire Eastern Bloc uh, had thought that they were doing really well. Um, they they you know, uh, believed that their products, things like the Trabant car, were you know, uh, leading products in the world that you know Soviet industry was driving them forward in real competition with the West. They were very shocked to find their turbines competing with like BMWs and Mercedes, right? Um, and in more than just a literal sense, um, some places reacted with a lot of inquiry and and a powerful desire for change. For example, I happened to be in Czechoslovakia at that time, 
and uh, the Czechs in particular really like had this national freak out about it basically they're like who the hell are we what are we doing what is this democracy thing you know people would stop and ask you questions on the street explain this democracy thing to me okay one man one vote but like does he get a vote you know <laughs> and like you know and they did some really kind of out there things that turned out to really work for them you know like they elected Václav Havel a poet as their president right um you know and uh you know, it turns out that it really, it, it worked. They embraced change. And as a result, uh, the Czech Republic now is the um, only former Soviet uh, country uh, described as fully developed by the World Bank. It's a member of EU NATO. Um, and, uh, you know, if you go to Prague, it is one of the world's great cities and has this astounding quality of life. Um, and in, in pretty much every way, uh, though there are still some legacy problems, but in pretty much every way, they live much like we do. Um, the same is not true, however, of Albania. <laughs> Are there any Albanians in the room? I just got back from Albania. So. Okay, but we can talk about it. <laughs> yeah. um, so Albania, as you may or may not know, was ruled by a guy named Enver Hoxha. And Hoxhaism, his theory of communism, has been described as communism for those who thought Maoism was too lenient. <laughs> um, he was essentially this raging paranoid. Right? And he was constantly convinced that Albania was the sole and like, major focus of foreign policy of every other nation on earth, particularly the Western imperialist countries. Right? So he was constantly prepared for an all-out invasion from the US. Right? Despite, despite the fact that most Americans, I don't think, could point to Albania on a globe. Right? Um, you know, nevertheless, he was like, we need to be prepared. And his answer was bunkers. Right? Uh, Albania went on a bunker building binge. Right? They built 750,000 bunkers in a nation of 3 million people. Right? And when the fall of the wall happened, and every other communist nation out there was having some form of like, you know, perestroika, glasnost, like we got to think things through, figure out who we are today, Albania basically doubled down. They're like, no, this is working for us. Keep building the damn bunkers, <laughs> right? As a result, their economy was like non-existent. It was black market and essentially pyramid schemes, right? In fact, two-thirds of all Albanians had invested in pyramid schemes by the mid-90s, right? And when those pyramid schemes collapsed, as they often do, um, in fact, as they always do, inevitably, every time, um, there were these terrible riots, 2,000 people died, the country fell, and they then had their moment of sort of, you know, profound clarity. And they looked around them and they said, you know, this is where we are. And this is not about Albanian people being stupid, right? But Albania today is, has the 111th uh, highest GDP per capita, which puts it behind, you know, uh, such economic powerhouses as Angola and Kazakhstan and Cuba, right? This is a, a European country that, that apparently could have been on the same course. And it's not that people are stupid there. It's not that people are not creative. There's some really great ideas, for example, about how to repurpose these bunk bunkers for like hotel cottages. <laughs> um, you know, but I would put it to you that when you find yourself in the position of trying to turn bunkers into real estate, something has gone seriously fucking wrong. <laughs> you know? And I think that this, this little fable um, really kind of illustrates the kind of difference that we're going to see in cities and in companies and in communities over the next 20 years. 
We're going to see places that just cannot believe things are changing, and they double down even harder. Right? And some of those places will be called Texas. Um, <laughs> and then we're going to see places that actually realize that there's this incredible opportunity set out there. Right? And that the gap between how we're doing things and how we know we need to do them is so huge right, that we're going to drive a whole lot of fortunes through that gap. And people are going to realize that like, being the first to do this stuff means that you're the first to know how to do it. And that means you have an exportable knowledge base. Right? Being the first to do this stuff means that you are getting there first in terms of the resource usages. Right? You're driving down the cost of being you by doing it. Right? And we're already seeing this. We're already seeing uh, you know, a, a, a strong uh, gap developing in terms of energy use per you know, dollar of GDP created. Right? Again, you can look at places like Oklahoma in the US, which is like all the way down at the bottom. And then you can look at other countries, which are doing much, much better. And of course, the moral of this whole story is very simple. It's, it's don't be Albania. <laughs> right? um, and I would submit to you that this is a choice that not only every place is going to have and every company is going to have, but everyone who's trying to figure out how to make a difference in the world, how to do big things, how to launch things that matter, is going to have to figure out whether what they're doing right, is fundamentally Czech or fundamentally Albanian, in a sense. Right? And you know, I, I hope that you all choose right. Um, so this is how to reach me if you need to get a hold of me. Uh, world Changing Carbon Zero will be out next month. Thank you very much for your time.